From training to performing, join our Big League Conversation. Welcome to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast with your host, Eric Cressy. Welcome back to the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Cressy, and this is episode 49. Uh, Dakota Herman's going to join me on today's show to help me work through some questions uh, for the month of March. We're going to cover biceps tendon stuff. We're going to talk about how relievers can schedule their lifting throughout the week. Um, we're going to discuss batter's shoulder, how uh, hitters can protect their lead shoulder. And we're also going to dig in a little bit on how high school baseball coaches can help keep their players safe from the first couple weeks of practice. So really looking forward to this episode. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is brought to you by Mark Pro. If you're a baseball pitcher, you know that keeping your arm healthy is essential. But with high training volumes on top of games, that's not always easy. Overuse is a significant problem for players at every level of baseball right now. Certainly, we see shoulder and elbow injuries as some of the most common overuse injuries in baseball. And as an example, at the professional level, a UCL injury can result in an average of 17.2 months out of competition. That's a huge deal also if you're a young player and you miss out on a lot of development. So really, at the end of the day, there are three ways that we can combat overuse. First, you can reduce the workload, and certainly there's been a lot of research out there on pitch counts. Second, and this is the theme of these podcasts, is that you can build a significant level of strength and fitness to prepare yourself. However, a third key approach that's often overlooked is that you can work to improve your recovery so that you can safely display your fitness day in and day out. And that's really where the Mark Pro is an effective tool. Some athletes will even use it to warm up their arms before they throw as well. Mark Pro is a cutting-edge EMS device that uses patented technology to create non-fatiguing muscle activation, and this is what separates it from other recovery tools. Muscle activation with Mark Pro facilitates each stage of the body's natural recovery process, similar to active recovery, but without the extra muscular effort and fatigue. Athletes can use it for as long as they need to ensure a more full and quick recovery in between training or games. With its portability and ease of use, players can use Mark Pro while traveling between games or while relaxing at home. We have players that use it all the time on team flights to bounce back while they're just chilling on that flight. Um, we have plenty of pro guys that use this. In fact, every ML team and over 200 pro pitchers are regularly using Mark Pro. Um, put it to the test for yourself now with their new Try Before You Buy program. And you can use the promo code Cressy at checkout for 10% off at markpro.com. Again, that's Cressy, C-R-E-S-S-E-Y, at checkout for 10% off at markpro.com, M-A-R-C-P-R-O.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Eric Cressy, and I am joined by my man, Dakota Herman, who's going to help co-host this episode. Welcome, Dakota. What's up? Got a lot of great questions today. Thanks for uh, serving as our MC once again. Um, before we get to it, just a quick heads up to folks that if you are interested in submitting a question, we usually collect these via an Instagram Q&A. It's at Eric Cressy, um, but you can also fire us an email at EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com if you want to submit a question for us to cover on the podcast. Um, with that said, you want to rock and roll? Yeah, let's do this. All right. Um, question number one. How would you recommend bullpen arms to plan their lifts in season? 
All right. So this is a, a question that probably depends, as is always the case with just about any question. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think if we look at, you know, college and professional ranks as probably our best scenarios, you know, in the high school ranks, most kids are playing two, maybe three games a week. Um, so, you know, at that age, it's, they're a little bit less trained. So it's more like just get in your in-season trading two to three full body sessions a week and you're in a good spot. College is a lot trickier, right? Seven-day rotation where you basically have Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and usually a midweek game. Um, so you have to be a little bit creative. I'd say for most guys, you're, you're playing for two full-body lifts if we're talking about your, your typical bullpen setup. Um, and what I think you have to do is you have to play it by ear on what happens on Friday and Saturday, and that's the start of your week. So if for some reason you throw back-to-back, you go Friday and Saturday – very rarely, unless you're in a, a highly abusive uh, pr- program at the division, whatever level, um, would you throw three days in a row? So my feeling is if you're going to – if you throw Friday and Saturday, you're definitely going to get a lift in on Sunday um, just as a way to consolidate that stress, knowing that, you know, Monday's a day you can get off. And then really you have the wiggle room to try to get in, you know, a second lift sometime in that at Tuesday, Wednesday range um, to make sure that you hit your, your numbers for the week. Um, you know, that said, obviously there's a chance that you might have to throw in a midweek game um, after you lifted that day, but that's the nature of it. You have to understand that if you're a, if you're a bullpen arm and you sit around, you wait for a perfect time to get your lifts in, it's really never going to happen. There's, there's no ideal time. So um, we have plenty of big league guys that lift on the days they go into pitch. So I think it's just important to keep that in mind. Um, now it's a little bit trickier if you're someone that, you know, that doesn't throw consistently. Maybe you throw Friday and Sunday. So you're always trying to find, you know, those opportunities. So, you know, maybe the kind of thing where it's just a, you know, it's a Monday, Thursday lifting schedule or something to that effect. Um, just remember there are guys that feel better sometimes on days that they lift, you know, pregame. Um, you know, also there's always the opportunity to go in and lift after a game, you know, depending on, you know, when you, when you're playing and, and all that and, and where you're playing as well, if you have access to a weight room. So, um, those are certain considerations on the big league side or really any kind of like pro ball side. Um, there are a couple different schools of thought, some different things that I've tried over the years. You know, I, I'd say one thing that's very, very common in baseball, um, is guys will lift Tuesday, Friday. The reason they lift Tuesday and Friday, those are very rarely days off in the baseball calendar and it's, you know, kind of spaced out over the course of the week. Um, so that's one thing to consider. Um, one that I like a little bit more is just say, Hey, I'm going to lift on the second day of any series, which usually works out to be two, sometimes three lifts per week. I like that a little bit better because it usually gives you a little more time to adjust if there's travel before the first day of a series. So, you know, sometimes you'll see, you know, teams that have, you know, crazy travel on a, a Thursday. So going in and lifting on that Friday might not be good. So you give them that extra day to kind of adjust. Um, and so the last thing I've, I've, I've certainly seen with folks is, um, you know, some stuff that we kind of came up with, with both short and long options. Um, it tends to work really well for bullpen arms that don't know whether they're going to go to long relief or like a shorter outing. So you want something that's flexible enough to accommodate a you know, a three inning appearance or, you know, one batter appearance. Um, so that's something that we've, we've pulled together over the course of time. And it, it really is just something that you build out around the volume. So you have effectively a, a choose your own adventure book that can go in two different directions. Um, so, you know, but I think the most important thing you can, you can remember is, you know, respect the qualities that you're training, right? So when we talk about lifting, most people refer to strength and obviously what you need to do to preserve muscle mass. Um, remember that strength tends to stick around pretty easily. Um, so, you know, you can train it as little as once every 30 days and it's going to hold on. I'm not saying you shouldn't train it more often. We certainly do. Um, but I would just tell you that you can preserve strength pretty easily as long as your bar speed is good in the weight room and you're, you're reasonably consistent. The thing that people overlook though is that 
that power is the thing that tends to fall off the, the fastest. Certainly like doing your sprint work and, and doing your throwing volume, um, you know, in season is, is power training in and of itself. Um, but you know, you may also need to be someone that finds a happy medium on that force velocity curve, meaning, um, you know, train with med balls, you know, train with some kind of speed strength or strength speed stuff, um, you know, throughout the season as well. So, you know, figure out where you, where you live on that absolute speed to absolute strength continuum and then, then plan accordingly. No, most definitely. That's really great stuff. I even, I mean, I can't really speak much for throwing every day as far as being a professional athlete, but I know for me, um, as far as being on the road and throwing, basically being ready to throw every Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I almost think of it like, when can I, when do I need to get my rest in? And I know for me, I feel, I've been throwing on Sundays, so I know I feel most sore, especially after long bus trips down south and back up north. I feel worse on Monday. And I'm going to need to rest probably on Friday after a long Thursday bus trip. So if I can get, if I pitch Sunday and I can get a good lift in on Tuesday, which is usually heavier, Mm -hmm. and then get a nice like Thursday lift in on the road, then I'm probably going to feel really good when it comes Friday, Saturday, Sunday when I need to perform. And even just adjusting that, I I know for me personally, I'm a pretty big, slow guy. Mm -hmm. So I like to even like sneaking power work in my warm-up like yep. doing hide-ins and doing stuff like that just to make sure i'm i'm hitting everything even though like i'm focused on performing at most of i'm not trying to complicate my own training if that makes makes sense i think it makes but. a ton of sense and i like the point about that the micro dosing you know we even talked about i think on our, our first q a we talked about like how to set up a seven-day rotation and i mm-hmm. i talk about trying to get in like two and a half lifts for most starters on a seven-day rotation so you know that that half lift you know it might just be doing some work with a trx and a med ball and you know some core work or something like that but a lot of people will feel charged up for that and they can do it right on a day game just to get a extra work in because you remember you're not you're not just lifting weights for the sake of you know basically building brute strength or you know just a you know enhancing muscle mass you're all just doing it for a lot of a lot of systemic beneficial reasons obviously improves improves glucose tolerance and um you know obviously has some some pronounced endocrine benefits so there are a lot of different things that you're getting as trickle down effects yeah no most definitely that's that's really great um this kind of moves away from pitching actually this next question um, how do you minimize posteriorly directed forces on leading shoulders of hitters? I, I think it's actually good that we get away from pitching. I think our na- na- <laughs> natural trend is al- always to talk about pitchers on this podcast. So we like it when we get hitting questions. So, um, you know, first I think uh, it's important to, to describe what, what actually happens. So we're talking about posteriorly directed forces on the leading shoulder of hitters. Um, what tends to happen is we'll see something called batter shoulder. So using the example of a right-handed hitter, the left shoulder can take a lot of abuse. Um, and what we will see was we'll often see chronic posterior labral tears on the lead shoulder. And there will be times where there's, there's kind of like a, you know, posterior dislocation, um, in a scenario. And so it's referred to as, as batter shoulder. And, and where we usually see it is we see it on an ugly check swing or we see it like a guy who gets fooled on a change up, right? So what effectively happens is if we're talking about a right handed hitter and we're looking at him from the, in the sky down, his hips are rotating counterclockwise towards the pitcher to get things going. If he gets fooled, um, for one reason, you know, basically what will happen is the hips continue to go while he tries to keep the upper body back so he's he's doing his best to delay his his hip shoulder separation as long as possible you know to keep the barrel on plane and try to be successful and what can happen is you wind up with excessive horizontal abduction or excuse me adduction of the humerus so basically think of that as just your left arm coming across your body so during that hip shoulder separation that's taking place 
it can kind of happen from different places, right? The hips move, you get some thoracic spine rotation, but you also get a little bit of it through the arm itself. So we know that the, the shoulder is a lot more vulnerable when it's in that really horizontally adducted position. So when it's reached across the chest. Um, so, you know, what can you do to minimize those forces? A, be a really good hitter and don't get fooled. Um, so, you know, that's <laughs> easier said than done. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, uh, that's, uh, that doesn't exactly make me a great hitting coach, obviously. Um, <laughs> But certainly that's that's one way to minimize those forces. I think the second thing is what we can do is we can build optimal thoracic spine mobility. So if you have good thoracic spine rotation, you know, in the in the direction away from the pitcher, it basically gives you a longer time to protect your humerus, right? So if you get more T-spine rotation, you don't have to get quite as much, um, you know, kind of arm movement across the torso. And we're actually going to talk a lot about this um, on a future podcast. Doug Ladd is going to be a, a guest, and he's got some great thoughts on, on this side of things where, you know, if the, if the arms are pulling, you're already in trouble. But um, one of the things that also makes us extra vulnerable, and, and this is an Another thing Doug's talked about is a lot of hitters are taught to be kind of soft into the zone, right? You don't want to be pulling with your arms, um, you know, to kind of create that pattern. So that makes us actually a little bit extra vulnerable. If you think about it, we have less kind of eccentric strength built up um, in prior to that point of contact. So you want your arms to be a little bit freer and easier to generate power. But at the same time, that freeness also tends to expose that lead shoulder to some of those violent forces. So um, I think we need to obviously make sure that we have – plenty of thoracic spine mobility, but, but above all else, you've got to have great scapular control and you've got to have a ton of posterior cuff slash posterior deltoid, um, strength to really resist those forces. And I think really what this is, is above all else, it's a lesson that, you know, position players need arm care just like pitchers do. And they don't just need it on their throwing shoulder. They also, they really need it on their non-throwing shoulder, particularly when you realize that most of the time, you know, if you have a guy who throws righty and bats righty, that left shoulder is going to be vulnerable, uh, you know, to, to labral tears in, in a batter shoulder standpoint, but also that left shoulder is going to be vulnerable with it's the, it's the hand that your glove is on, right? So when you dive, in many cases you're coming down on it. If you're a first baseman reaching up the line to, to catch a ball and you have to make a tag on a runner as he comes by, that's an issue. Um, you know, there's certainly issues with, with slides, um, you know, or dives back into first base on pickoffs. There's all these different places you can tweak it, but the lesson is like, don't get lazy with your non-throwing shoulder, particularly if you're a pitch, uh, position player, you got to really make sure you take care of it. Um, the other thing I would definitely recommend, um, my man, Frank Alexander, he's an athletic trainer who works with, uh, Dr. Chris Ahmad, one of our, our other previous guests. He wrote a great chapter on, um, on batter shoulder in a book called baseball sports medicine, which is an outstanding compilation of, um, it's just basically chapter by chapter. We'll go through different pathologies that we see in baseball populations and, you know, speak to surgical interventions and things like that. But, um, you know, really, uh, optimize thrust, my mobility, get great scapular control, get great rotator cuff strength and timing, and uh, don't get fooled. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. And I, I like how you said that. I mean, a lot of the same stuff we're going to do to mitigate the, the forces is a lot of the same stuff we do to keep an arm healthy for throwers. No, and no. I, I'm always feeling bad for – not feeling bad, but I'm always feeling for my position players because I know I see them go take a whole round of BP and then they run out there, they kind of rush their throwing program, and then they get out there and they throw a million balls across a diamond with mm -hmm. really minimal rest. And then yep. they're going and they're doing base running and they're diving back and I can see their their hand getting snagged on bags. So it's yep. a lot of stuff that's just built up. 
And the other thing that people forget too is if you're a one-handed finish, you're you're double vulnerable, right? So obviously you can get posterior labral irritation with a lot of horizontal adduction when the arm comes across your chest if you're you're early with your hips and late with your arm action. But if you have a one-handed finish too, you kind of have oh, the yeah. same exact injury mechanism that we'll often see in throwers. You have a tendency towards anterior instability, and you know in, in those positions you can wind up with even more irritation of that that posterior labrum. So you know don't wait for it to start hurting. Really take care of it I'll, I'll tell you most of the the veteran hitters that we see um will all be banged up on their front shoulder um you know many cases because they didn't take care of it early on so that's a lesson you can learn like get out ahead of it yeah no big finish definitely means a, a little more damage to the front of that shoulder in the swing for yeah. sure um uh, moving on from the hitters now uh the third question we have is what are your thoughts on bicep tenodesis and recovery all right. Okay. So this is a loaded question and we're, we're going to talk about it with respect to baseball, but I think before we talk about, you know, tenodesis, we have to talk about maybe the history of the biceps tendon in, in professional baseball or really baseball at all levels. So, um, what we know about the long head of the biceps is it attaches on your superior labrum. So obviously it runs up from your, uh, your lower arm and travels through the bicipital groove and then attaches on the superior labrum. And, you know, people think it's active as a, you know, a, a flexor of the shoulder it certainly is, but, you know, really it's prime primary, uh, you know, functions are anterior and superior stability of the shoulder. Um, it also is, is somewhat of a compressive stabilizer at ball release. So early on, it was, you know, proposed that it was a deceleration mechanism, meaning as you got to ball release, there was this big time, you know, it was like one and a half times body weight and distraction forces at the shoulder. Um, you know, effectively the, the, the elbow is extending at the same time. So you have a biceps tendon that's really working uh, eccentrically slash isometrically at both joints at a really aggressive position and a high velocity delivery. So, you know, for a long time, we thought that that was where injuries occurred. That was something that was put out there in the eighties and, and really in the early two thousands, the, the peel back mechanism was introduced. It was a, you know, landmark study from um, a landmark paper from Kibler, Burkhart and Morgan. Um, and they talked about this peel back mechanism. So your biceps tendon really tends to get irritated during the layback phase of throwing. Um, you know, basically what will happen is it, it twists and it tugs on the superior labrum and, when the scapula is in the wrong position and the rotator cuff doesn't do its job, you kind of get the humeral head riding up on the underside of it and, and you get some irritation. And so what we see in a slap tear, um, you know, or more specifically a slap two injury is that biceps tendon will actually, you know, rip right off the, the superior labrum. So, um, and that was certainly consistent with what we heard from players. They would always talk about the injury happened when they transitioned from caulking to acceleration, right? As they, you know, they started to get their arm moving forward, something went. Um, and, you know, what we realized is, you know, early on, they, they fixed a lot of, uh, you know, slap injuries by just restoring normal anatomy, right? So they reattached the biceps tendon, they, they clean up the labrum, put in some anchors as needed, and they send guys back out to do their thing. Um, you know, and that was all well and good, but we actually, you know, they realized that there was actually a population of, of folks that didn't get better. Um, they still wound up having significant anterior shoulder pain. And the reason for that was, in many cases, they were probably reattaching degenerative biceps tendons. Um, so I was lucky. I saw the first biceps tendonesis in professional baseball. It was Kurt Schilling. He's been very open about our work together. So I can, I can speak, uh, you know, with respect to names. And I saw him at the end of his career. So I, I learned a lot about that. That was back in 2008, 2009. So it was, a, it was a good learning experience because it was very new at that point. Um, at that point, there was some really good research that showed that, you know, tendonesis was a great fit for those who had, um, 
who had had failed slap repairs. So what they do with a tenodesis, there's kind of two ways of doing it, is they, they effectively snip off the degenerative portion of the biceps tendon, and then they reattach it um, a little bit lower down in the humerus. So they can either put it back in the, in the groove, or they can do what's called a subpectoral biceps tenodesis where, tenodesis, where they move it off to the side. So both of those options were put out there, and you know they actually showed some, some outstanding results. Um, I, I want to say it was over 90% success rates in failed slap repairs in the general population. So if you can take people who have had failed shoulder repairs and then get 90% positive outcomes, like that's a pretty good place to be. Um, so it was encouraging. So the next step was, hey, let's let's try these with baseball players. Um, and you know, so they started doing a few more of these, and you know, the, the, there's a challenge, um, and that's that the biceps tendon is a really important anterior and superior stabilizer in a throwing shoulder. So if it's not there you really need a strong rotator cuff to pick up the slack. And in many cases, you might actually benefit from a little bit more of a, a tighter capsule. So you had surgeons that were starting to tighten the capsule to kind of make up for the lack of a biceps tendon. So there were some guys that came back from that surgery and didn't get their external rotation back. And if you don't get your ER back, it's going to be really hard to throw hard. Um, so that was the first thing. You know, the second thing that's that's very, very tricky with, with this surgery is, you know, when they actually drill that, uh, you know, basically attachment point for the long head of the biceps, into the humerus, there were some instances of, of fractures to the humeral shaft because of the torsional stress that was play, taking place during throwing. So there was, um, you know, a scenario where they, they protected the shoulder, but they weakened the bone lower down. Um, so, you know, biceps tenodesis are a little bit of a challenging surgery. There have been some guys that have come back and, and pitched in the big leagues. I know Peter Moylan was a guy whose name was out there as one. And um, there have been a few more that, that have come back. I actually saw one a couple weeks ago. So there is a, a history of guys that have come back from it. Um, on the whole, I think the surgery has been done too much in a throwing population and, um, you know, maybe a little bit too ambitious. With that said, the next frontier, um, is, is something called a biceps transfer. They're, they're doing those more often now. So instead of reattaching the biceps, uh, tendon on the humerus, they're actually moving it over to the coracoid process. So effectively they're, they're making two short heads of the biceps. Um, I've seen two of them in my career, but they are getting more and more prevalent and it does kind of overcome some of the classic shortcomings um, of a tenodesis. So that's something that I think we need to keep our eyes on. Um, the other thing that's interesting is if you look at the general population, take like a, an 85-year-old grandmother who has got chronic biceps tendon pain, they'll just do what's called a tenotomy. They'll snip the biceps tendon off and they'll just let it free float in space. It'll, it'll create an actual deformity, um, but people's pain goes away. So you're, you're almost better off having a fully detached tendon as opposed to a, a degenerative one that's just hanging out there. So where do I stand on tendinesis? Um, I still think, in spite of the fact they've been doing these a long time, you know, the, the jury is still out about how do they, how well they do. I think you gotta be really careful to make sure you're a good candidate for it. It is what's necessary for you. So if you're someone who's looking at doing one, um, you know, if you've had multiple failed slap repairs or one failed slap repair, you, you certainly could be a candidate. Make sure you're getting, uh, multiple second opinions, uh, or at least a second opinion, maybe even a third opinion on it. Make sure you're going to a doctor who's done these regularly if they do recommend it. Um, you know, investigate the possibility of a biceps transfer. Um, the other things I would look at though is, is in many cases, 
that anterior shoulder pain could be some, coming from something else. So before you, re, you know, reconcile yourself to chasing that degenerative biceps tendon, start looking at, hey, could I benefit from some manual therapy on scalenes? Maybe it's, you know, a chronic trigger point, infraspinatus, or, you know, a subclavius that's really gross. All those things can refer to the posterior shoulder, or excuse me, to the anterior shoulder. So you want to make sure you, you check every box. So before you, you default to that, you know, make sure you've seen multiple physical therapists, good manual therapists, and just dug a little bit deeper on what things you need to rule out. Because um, I'd, I'd say anterior shoulder pain is, is very misdiagnosed and misunderstood, particularly in the throwing population. So if you're a thrower considering a, a, a tenodesis, make sure you're talking to doctors that actually know what's going down and, um, you know, just really, really do your homework. No, that's awesome. That's really interesting stuff too. I mean, there's a ton to learn from that. I know the the person that asked this question had a couple failed slap tears, so I'm sure that's going to help them a ton. Yeah. I mean, like you said, honestly, I mean, there's so much that could be going wrong with front shoulder pain and it's, it's tough if, if a doctor just wants to immediately go to bicep tenodesis. So, I mean, like you said, make sure you're checking all your boxes because there really are so many, so many other areas that could be, could be affecting that. Yeah. And that's kind of a last result, especially if you're talking about the risk factors for coming back from it. Yeah. Um, Don't get me wrong. Guys have come back from it. And for some people, it can make a massively positive impact on their quality of life, particularly those in, the, in a non-athletic population who are just trying to live a good quality of life. And, you know, if it's the kind of thing where you're, you're two failed slap repairs deep, it may very well be a, you know, a beneficial option, um, to pursue. Um, but yeah, again, look, look closely at all the factors involved and, and, and get a feel for what's the right fit for your specific population. No, that's great. Um, last question we have is what is your best advice to prepare high school pitchers for week one of their spring season? That's a good one. This is, uh, this is actually a, we, we joke. Um, so in Massachusetts, the high school baseball season starts the third Monday in March. And it's like literally the last uh, two weeks of March, I would say, is like the busiest physical therapists are up there <laughs> because of the number. It happens for a couple of reasons. Guys, you know, basically don't do anything all off season and they show up unprepared and they ramp up and all of a sudden something hurts. Um, you know, so when you see like a pulled quad, like it's kind of a classic, I haven't sprinted all off season, hip flexors, those, those types of things. But, you know, certainly you see a lot of arm issues as well. Um, so, you know, I, I think the best, you know, answer to this question is, you know, is make sure people are doing something in the off season, make sure that they're actually showed up prepared. But I think the second aspect of that, particularly for high school coaches is you've got to figure out where players are, you know, cause you're gonna have kids that just finished playing basketball and haven't had a chance to pick up a baseball to get built up. So you might need to extend their throwing program a little bit more, get them, get them built up a little bit more gradually. Um, you know, you're going to have other kids that, you know, have been going like gangbusters for months and months and months. Like we have a lot of high school kids that start their throwing program, like right around Thanksgiving, you know, after, uh, after, you know, fall sports wrap up. So, you know, those guys are, you know, they've got five weeks under their belt before the new year starts. And then, you know, they get another uh, effectively, you know, really probably about 12 to 13 weeks before the season starts in, in Massachusetts. So they've got a lot of time to really build some good arm speed and be like pristine and ready to roll. So, um, you know, I would say you, you have to meet kids where they're at. Don't assume that they're prepared. You have to kind of dig deep on, on those things. And, and the other thing I, I would remember is, uh, you know, we've got some pretty interesting research that, you know, that demonstrates what happens when kids are, you know, sleep deprived. So if you look at like injury rates during final exams and things like that, 
Um, you know, the college ranks, you know, they go astronomically high. We know kids that don't sleep enough, you know, their injury risk goes substantially higher. So, um, I actually really hate like early morning practices for guys the first couple of weeks. Um, I understand it's logistics. You're fighting over gym space, especially in the Northeast where the, the fields are still covered in snow and all that. But, um, if at all possible, if you're, if you're going to work with guys in the morning, I, don't beat them into the ground. Um, you know, I, I think you got to be really, really cognizant of them and just, just appreciate that the, you know, the fatigue aspect of things is going to be really hide for your unprepared kids so you know you hate to hold everybody back for those guys but um you know this is kind of like prime injury time in in the the season if, if we're talking about it being march already the season on the high school baseball side of things is so short if you get hurt you know basically the first week in april your season is you, you've lost a, a, at least at least at least half of it because it takes so much longer to, to ramp up i mean um what we were used to in massachusetts was a scenario where you know you, you get a bunch of games rained out over the first couple weeks of april and then you wind up having to play four or five you know a week for the whole month of may um florida florida's different you know the season starts the you know, like january 30th and you know those kids you know, they play basically two games a week all the way up until like you know, mid to late May. So it's, it's much more spread out and you can get away with a, a smaller roster because you don't have to have so much depth when you only play twice a week. So it's just markedly different kind of dynamics, but Hey, show up prepared and, you know, don't push kids too fast. Those are my, my biggest, you know, solutions. No, hundred percent. I mean, the education goes the farthest. I think if you just tell kids what they need to do to be prepared and then if kids show up unprepared for whatever reason, whether playing a winter sport or they just chose not to work hard I mean it's your job then as a coach to have the wherewithal to not put them in a situation that's going to get them hurt and if that affects their their playing time then that's on them yeah. I think that's the best way to go about it I mean I mean especially in the northeast I mean I know out in the midwest and Iowa when I was playing college out there they actually start their season in May so kids got a, a lot better opportunity to be prepared because they actually have March and April Mm-hmm. Um, to be ready and then they go into the summer and, and play all summer i think that's a really cool way of doing it out there no doubt about it and I, I think it's really important as a as an aside to this we are a thousand percent in favor of kids playing multiple sports don't don't yeah. bang don't bang basketball just because you're worried about you know, oh, what it'll do for your, your throwing point you always have time to make that up you know whether you're a guy that decides you're gonna you know just kind of push your competitive calendar back a little bit maybe you play fall ball or maybe you just you know you you make sure you uh you know you peak early in the summer as opposed to during high school ball it's just it's just a different calendar and what you gain from those other sports is 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 incredibly advantageous comparatively so make sure no, you're, you're still doing as many different things as you can yeah and especially too i think even like those early stages of throwing programs are are low demand and if you're doing a good throwing program it really isn't that stressful of a time when you're first starting to build up so it really is i think sometimes people complicate how they can transition from basketball to baseball so yeah just like you're saying play all the sports you can because it's yeah. way better to be an athlete than to just be yeah. a, a po and just work yeah. about work on your throwing program so yeah, it's, it's a moot point for us to be talking about too in march but um we, we did talk about it with mike king on his podcast not too long ago mike was a, yeah. a real good high school basketball player and you know he was a guy who always would get in his two to three days a week of throwing you do it right after basketball practice in the gym while he was already warm so you know it you know maybe something for down the road but you know make sure you're you're getting at least a head start on if you can get four weeks of throwing on your belt before you report you're usually in a pretty good position to to get off the mound and start doing your thing 100 percent. no that's really clear for people that's awesome 
Awesome. So March Q&A in the books. Uh, Dakota, awesome. thanks for taking the time, my man. Um, thank course. you, everybody, for your questions. Um, if you have anything you'd like covered, again, you can go EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com or submit it to me on uh, Instagram Q&A at Eric Cressy. Also, we'd love it if you could review the show uh, on iTunes if you have time and willingness to do so. Um, we appreciate you listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the CSP Elite Baseball Development Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd be thrilled if you'd consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a review to read on iTunes. We welcome your suggestions for future guests and questions. Just email EliteBaseballPodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your continued support, and we'll see you next episode.